0: Welcome back to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Hey, 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 Mr. Cornwell here. Welcome back to the Corner. On today's exciting episode, we are going to be discussing the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation was the first constitution of the new United States of America. The Articles were written or drafted by the Second Continental Congress. And if you recall from the Revolutionary War podcast, the Second Continental Congress is the government that fights the Revolutionary War. So back when they declared independence in the early days of the war, they also drafted the Articles of Confederation just in case they won, they would need a new government. So the Articles were intended to be the long-term solution to government in the United States of America if they win the Revolutionary War. They definitely reflect America's fear at the time. Now, you got to keep in mind, since the early 1760s, this is now the 1780s, for the past 20 years, these gentlemen have been fighting against English rule in some form or fashion, about representation, about government, about taxes— so they spent a majority of their adult lifetime fighting against English rule. And at the time, in the 1760s, 1770s, and 1780s, England had the strongest government on earth. King George III was the strongest monarch in the world. So if they had spent 20-plus years of their adult life rebelling against the strongest central authority in the world, they surely did not want to replace him with another strong central authority. To put it bluntly, they did not want to replace King George III of England with King George I of Virginia, if you know what I mean. So, therefore, the Articles reflected America's fear of federal power. Too much power in the hands of the central government. So, the Articles were designed to prevent that. Therefore, they gave more power to the individual political units, i.e., the states. So under the Articles, the first Constitution of the United States, the states had more power than the federal government. The Articles go into effect in 1781 until they're replaced by the U.S. Constitution in 1788. So for most of the 1780s, the United States was ruled under the Articles of Confederation. That was the Constitution that established the federal government at this time period. One of the major events we covered last week, if you remember, is Shays' Rebellion. Shays' Rebellion basically points out the weaknesses of the central government or the federal government under the Articles. Before Shays' Rebellion, some people are saying we need a stronger central government. After Shays' Rebellion, a lot more people are saying that because they're afraid the next rebellion just might be a revolution, if you remember what that means. We'll be right back after this short break to discuss the structure, the feature, and the power, or the functions, of the Articles of Confederation. I am not thrown away my shot. I am not thrown away my shot. Yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. I'ma get a scholarship to King's College. I probably shouldn't brag, but dag, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is I not a lot of brains, but no polish. I got a holler just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough. A piece of coal trying to reach my goal, my power of speech, unimpeachable. Only nineteen, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get cold. I shoulder every burden, every disadvantage. I've learned to manage. I don't have a gun to brandish. I walk these streets famished. The plan is to fan this walk into a flame. But damn, it's getting dark. So let me spell out the name. I am the AL, EX, We are meant to be a colony that runs into pain. All right, I hope you enjoyed that short little break. That music selection was called My Shot. It is from the musical Hamilton. In the first segment, we just basically introduced the Articles of Confederation. So at this point, you should know they were the first constitution in the United States, and they gave more power to the states than the central government. So let's look at the structure. Uh, what is a constitution in general? The people who write constitutions are known as framers because the purpose of a constitution is to build the government. The Constitution is the framework that establishes the government. So the Articles of Confederation was America's first constitution. They are replaced by the U.S. Constitution, which is America's second constitution and still in effect to this day. So let's look at the structure. Um, What type of central government was created under the Articles? Well, to start with, there was one branch, not three. So the central government under the Articles consisted of one branch, and that branch was a Congress or a legislature. There was no executive branch, which means there's no chief executive officer or president of the United States. And there was no judicial branch, so there was no federal court systems. Now, don't be alarmed. If people got in trouble, you still went to court, but they were all state court systems. There was no U.S. federal court under the Articles. The only branch that was created was Congress. If you remember, Congress's job is to make laws. Now, there were 13 colonies, now states. Um, Each state, regardless of its size, regardless of its population, each state got one vote. Now, that sounds very democratic, doesn't it? One per state. That's about the definition of equal. To pass any laws under the Articles... You needed 75%, which equates to nine or more states. So like under the system today to pass laws, you need 50%. At worst, you need a supermajority, which is 60% in some cases. But in this case, you need 75%. So let's take a look here. If you're from Virginia, which is the most populated state in the union, there's more people in Virginia than any of the other 12 states. You have a grand total of one vote. If you're from Georgia, which is one of the least populated states in the unit at this time period, you have a grand total of one vote. So Virginia has a little less than a million residents, and for those million residents, they get one vote. Georgia has less than 100,000 residents at the time, which means if you're from Georgia, you get one vote for under just under 100,000 residents. So the small states loved it because they had the equal say as large states. The large states didn't like it because the small states could prevent them from getting anything done it's equal representation if you're from a small state what that means is under this system if the small least populated states stuck together they could possibly prevent like 75 percent of the population from passing any laws whatsoever because of equality so under the Articles, the big states did not like the way they were being represented in the central government. The small states really did like it. Also, another weakness of the central government Articles is the power to tax. So citizens paid no taxes to the central government under the Articles. All taxes were paid to the state government. Now, if you just have one branch of Congress, it may be a relatively small central government, but every government needs money to operate. So how did the central government get money under the Articles of Confederation? The same way you get your money today. Most children today are not employed. They don't have income, so therefore they have to ask their parents. In this case, the central government would ask the states for money. Your parents are not under any obligation to hand you cash. They can give you some money if they want. They don't have to. And they don't have to give you everything you're asking for. And that's the same way the states work. So the central government could request money from Georgia, from Virginia, from New York, from Massachusetts. Many times they got nothing back or a lot less. So what that means, since they did not have the power to tax and they were at the mercy of the states for funding, that means the central government was always broke. They did not have very much money. Um, also, the central government had no ability to regulate commerce or to establish a national currency or money. So, those all, all those powers rested with the states, not the central government. Also, the central government, under the Articles of Confederation, had no power to raise a standing army. It's a lot different. Today, we have armies all over the world. In this time period, in the colonies, now the United States of America, many of the states didn't really have a standing army, like a professional army. Like after the Revolutionary War, many of the soldiers went home, but most communities were represented by like local militia, which is a volunteer army, if you remember from our Revolutionary War podcast. So this is a little different in their lifetime than it is today. But what this means is since they had no money, the central government, and they did not have the ability to raise an army – that they could not help enforce state or federal laws, central laws anywhere. So if something happened, the central government was powerless to stop it. Also, if you wanted to change the articles, so to pass a law, you needed 75% or you needed nine out of the 13 states had to agree before any laws got passed, which doesn't happen very often. To change the articles themselves, you needed a unanimous agreement. In other words, 100%. So if 12 states wanted to change the articles and one state did not, if Rhode Island said no, one of the smaller states, then there was no changes. So what that generally means is the central government under the articles was very weak, very ineffective, hard to pass laws, never changed the articles themselves, was always broke and had no army. The best way to think about it is think it like this. The 13 states were actually independent countries that agree to stick together for mutual defense. That's much more of a representation of the U.S. government under the Articles of Confederation. Now, what happens, if you remember from the Constitution podcast, the Shays' Rebellion scares people and it proves how weak the central government really is. So, what the Shays Rebellion leads to eventually is to a meeting to revise the Articles, and they wind up changing them. We now call that meeting the Constitutional Convention. So, that takes place in 1787, and it's ratified in 1788. So, when we come back for our last segment, we will wrap up the Articles of Confederation. Enjoy this short commercial break. How does a bastard orphan? Son of a whore, go on and on, grow into more of a phenomenon. Watch this obnoxious, arrogant, loud mouth bother. Be seated at the right hand of the father. Washington hires Hamilton right on sight, but Hamilton still wants to fight, not right. Now Hamilton's skill with the quill is undeniable, but what do we have in common? We're reliable with the ladies the flower ladies Looks proximity to power ladies they delighted and distracted a Martha Washington named her feral tomcat after him that's true alright Mr. Cordenmo's back here for the wrap up of the Articles of Confederation I hope you enjoyed that little ditty that was a winter's ball from the musical Hamilton so to wrap up the Articles of Confederation is the first constitution of the United States They were written by the Second Continental Congress back in the early days of the Revolutionary War. They created a weak central government with the states holding most of the power. They were weak and ineffective and eventually were replaced in 1788 with the U.S. Constitution. Let's take a look here. The last thing I want to talk about is General George Washington's role in this whole process. So if we go all the way back to the Revolution podcast – You should recall George Washington wins independence from Great Britain through war. He's the general that gets it done. So when the Treaty of Paris is signed in 1783, in September, word comes back to the colonies, now the United States of America, that peace is achieved and the war is over. Washington and his officers go home. So when word gets back to Europe that George Washington, a citizen farmer from Virginia, left his farm, led an army against the English government for eight consecutive years, and at the end of that war is successful, and then walks away from power and go back, goes back to his farm. Um, that's unbelievable. Up until that point in Europe, it was run by king or queens, And if there was a dictator, if anybody had seized power through war, they remained in power until they were either overthrown or died. This tale of Washington winning power from Great Britain and then willingly walk away. The last person to do this goes way back to ancient Rome, a gentleman farmer by the name of Cincinnatus, which is where we get our name Cincinnati, the city of Cincinnati from. And stop me when this sounds familiar. He is a citizen's farmer that is called to the head of the army when it's threatened, successfully leads it, and then after the war, goes back home instead of making himself the Caesar or king or whatever you want to call it. Washington walks away from power at the end of the Revolutionary War, which is unbelievable in the rest of the world. They just can't believe this is true because this has never happened before in in modern history. And then once the articles go into effect, there is no president. There's just a congress. And the common opinion in Europe is things are going so bad in the colonies now, the United States in the 1780s. The central government is in debt from the Revolutionary War, state governments are in debt, and individual citizens are in debt to Europe for the Revolutionary War. The economy's in the tank. Politically, nothing's getting done. It seems to be chaos, mass chaos in the United States. Most people in Europe in the 1780s believe it's only a matter of time before the colonies come begging King George III to let them back into the British Empire. If the articles stay in effect, the United States is most likely going to break up. The the government is a central government is just not working at all. So when they have a meeting, the purpose of the Constitutional Convention at first is to discuss strengthening the articles. So when they convene a meeting, they get the old band back together in Philadelphia 12 years after The declaration of independence they get most of the old band members back together and go back to philadelphia to strengthen the articles Uh, the one person who must be at this meeting to make it legitimate is george washington both sides those that want a much stronger central government they're known as the federalist and those that want a stronger central government but not too strong of a central government those are anti-federalist both sides all of those people trust george washington So he must not only be at this meeting, he must preside over it, president of the Constitutional Convention. So he left power in 83. This is now 87. Four years later, they go back to Mount Vernon, get Washington off of his farm at Mount Vernon, and bring him back to Philadelphia for this meeting. And then after this meeting is over, the Constitution still does not replace the Articles, until the states approve it so washington leaves the meeting in philadelphia in 88 goes back to mount vernon in virginia his farm and retires a second time while the states decide whether to pass the new constitution or not finally the new constitution is ratified and the office of presidency must be george washington it was created for him Keep in mind, the biggest fear they have is giving one person or a small group of people too much central power. Washington is the one person that all sides trust, and he's earned that trust because he's willingly walked away from power twice already by this time. It's the reason why he's inaugurated in the first, as the first president of the United States on April 30th, 1789, is because Washington has shown the ability to not want too much power. Now, at the end of his first term, he wants to retire. Uh, By this point, it's 1792. George Washington has been in service to his country since the French and Indian War of the 1750s. Forty years, most of almost entire adult life, he is tired and he is ready to retire. He don't know how much time he's got left, but he would like to go back to Mount Vernon. Well, his friends on both sides, the Federalist and anti federalists approach him again and they say, sir, if you retire now, the country, the government won't survive without you. And to the people that fought it, the revolution, to the people that instituted the government, they still looked at the early government as part of the revolution. In other words, without Washington, the revolution will fail. And he didn't want want that to happen, taking 40 years of his adult life and then have it turn out and fail at the end of his life. So at the end of his first term, they convinced him to stay for a second term. So Washington serves two terms as president of the United States. Now, towards the end of his second term, they try to convince him to come back for a third term. But at this point, Washington's had it. He is, at this point, 65 years old. He's been in service to his country since he was 22 years old during the French and Indian War. He is worn out. He is tired. He does not like the political game. He much prefers army life over politics. And there is no way on earth Washington's come back for a third term. Now, as fate would have it, one of the best things Washington ever did for this country was leaving after two terms. The reason for that is if Washington would have stayed for his third term, we now know Washington dies at 67 years old. So if Washington, instead of retiring after two terms, would have came back for a third term, he would have died in office. So from George Washington... All the way down to Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1940. Every president retired after two terms or couldn't get elected to two terms out of respect for George Washington. There was no term limits in the Constitution to the presidency of the United States from Washington all the way up until 1951. Congress takes Washington's two term limit, the tradition, and makes it the law of the 22nd Amendment. I hope you enjoyed that little bit extra history there on Washington and the office of the presidency. And remember, the Articles of Confederation were America's first constitution and was a colossal failure and were replaced with the U.S. Constitution, which still goes on to this day. Well, I hope you enjoyed this short discussion on the Articles of Confederation. And this is Mr. Cornwell signing off, and I'll see you next time around the corner. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Be sure to hit that like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss another episode. See you next time. I am Blaine Jaffe, the voice of the intro and exit for Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Thank you for listening.